Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke for you. It's a kid joke. Uh, two men were flying in an airplane. Unfortunately, one fell out. Fortunately, there was a haystack. Unfortunately, there was a pitchfork in the haystack. Fortunately, he missed the pitchfork. Unfortunately, he missed the haystack. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from the Frank Stanton Studios in Los Angeles, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from Stuart Brand. He edited the Whole Earth Catalog and wrote the new book, Whole Earth Discipline. Coming up, Lara Veers, Hotels in Space, King Tut, Jonathan Safran Four, and Deep Purple. Let it never be said we didn't give you everything we had. It's all here in this little cast. But first, time for small talk. So, Brendan, the headlines this week were full of massive surprises. Okay. In the World Series, the Yankees won. Blew my mind. In the elections, some Republicans won and some Democrats won. Nailbiter. And in Texas, a polygamous sect leader was convicted of sexual assault. When will this end? I, I do not know. <laughs> What's next? Gridlocked Congress? I can't I can't tell you. A public radio fun drive? Traffic in Los Angeles? <laughs> it's outrageous. Maybe Jessica Simpson's going to be brokenhearted. <laughs> anyway, to save ourselves a heart attack, we begged the staff at Marketplace to tell us some less shocking news. George Judson, managing editor of Marketplace. What are you going to be talking about this weekend? The swine flu vaccine shortages in Canada. I thought the Canadian health system was perfect. It is if you're a hockey player. <laughs> what's, go- <laughs> what's going on? Well, on the one hand, some people are standing in line for hours. On the other hand, a healthcare worker was fired for giving preferential treatment to a professional hockey team. That sounds outrageous, but, you know, hockey players don't use the dental system in Canada, so maybe they get first dibs on the vaccine. Well, they're bigger, too. <laughs> Jeremy Hobson, New York reporter, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? The new frontier, Rico, the Galactic Suite Space Resort Hotel, offering a number of rooms at discount rates, will be available starting in 2012. This is a hotel in space. Just four and a half million dollars for a three-night stay. And the the Coinop vibrating bed takes thousand-dollar bills only. Yes, it's actually going to accept all universal currencies. (laughs) But Rico, the hotel staff's sort of out there. <laughs> Stacey Vanek Smith, senior reporter for Marketplace. What's your story? Well, Mindset Media just did a bunch of research on beer. I've been doing research on beer for a decade. Right, but their research focuses on like what a beer says about a person. For example, bud drinkers are more likely to drive a truck. Heineken drinkers are more likely to drive sports cars. And craft beer drinkers are more likely to watch The Office. This is completely different than what my beer says about me. What does your beer say about you? It's like, oh great, here comes that jerk who killed my family. <laughs> there used to be six of us. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a tater skin, but instead of sour cream, chives, and bacon, it's filled with booze. (laughs) The healthier option. It's really, (laughs) that's for the dieters. First, as always, the history. This week back in 1922, the entrance to King Tut's tomb was discovered. Now, your dinner guests will have heard of the king. They may have even seen his treasures. They may have even walked like him. (laughs) (laughs) You're about to hear the rest of the King Tut story. Michelle Philippi is on vacation. What? So here's Eve Trow. Tut's tomb may be the most important archaeological find in history, and it was all made possible by a bored rich guy. 
His name was George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert. And surprise, he was a British aristocrat. He loved racing around in newfangled contraptions called automobiles. That is, until he crashed one. Frail of health, he started spending winters in Egypt. To pass the time, Herbert became an amateur archaeologist. But two years into it, all he'd found was a mummified cat. So, like any good aristocrat, he decided to pay a pro to dig for him. In 1908, he hired Howard Carter to search for treasures in the ancient burial ground called the Valley of Kings. Now, most excavators figured the valley's royal tombs had all been discovered, but Carter kept finding gold items bearing the name of Tutankhamun, the boy king. He insisted Tut's tomb was near, so he kept digging for 14 years. It paid off. On November 1st, 1922, Carter's crew unearthed a step, and then more steps, leading down to a series of sealed doors. A month later, Carter and Lord Herbert peered into the most well-preserved Egyptian tomb ever found. I suppose most excavators would confess to a feeling of awe when they break into a tomb closed and sealed so many centuries ago. He wasn't the only one in awe. The world freaked out over the treasures in Tut's tomb. Ancient Egyptian-style clothes were all the rage. Architects worked Egyptian designs into their Art Deco buildings. But Lord Herbert didn't get to see most of it. Five months after the tomb was opened, he died from an insect bite. Newspapers called him the first victim of King Tut's curse. So that's the history now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm speaking with Louis Martinez. He is bar manager at Casa La Femme in New York City. They specialize in Egyptian cuisine. And Louis, you've heard the history. What drink does it inspire you to make? Actually, we have a beautiful cocktail. It's called the Tamarind. The Tamarind? Uh, T-A-M-A-R-I-N-D. All right, what's in this thing? It's actually made with fresh squeezed lemon lime juice, uh, equal parts, and also simple syrup with a touch of tamarind syrup, mint leaves, shaken on the rocks, and it's fabulous. They're one of our best sellers here. What, what is tamarind? Tamarind is actually a cross from a pomegranate and a prune juice, actually. It's kind of like a sweet and sour type of taste. Is that like an, a, a typical Egyptian fruit or something? It is, actually. It, well, Middle Eastern as well. Right. It suddenly occurs to me that you have yet to mention any alcohol in this cocktail. The alcohol is actually a Corazon Reposado Tequila. It's aged um, much longer than silver tequila. So it's aged? Correct. Like a whiskey or a scotch or something? Yes, it's still aged in oak barrels. Sort of like King Tut in his coffin. It is. Uh, All right, the tamarind. Now, I understand your place also does wonders with another Middle Eastern staple, which is baklava. What makes yours so great? Instead of uh, flat layers, it's rolled, stuffed with fresh nuts, shredded coconut. And it's uh, drizzled with homemade simple syrup with a touch of lemon juice and cinnamon. Oh, man. I want to break into a tomb and find a ton of that. It's amazing. It's amazing to think about how revolutionary that discovery was. It like, was. altered Art Deco and all this stuff. It boggles the mind to think that a discovery like that would be made nowadays. It's true. It's like the biggest discovery this year was in France. They uh-huh. found a bunch of perfectly preserved leather shoes. <laughs> all right. That wasn't in the Philippines. No. That, that, was, that was in <laughs> <It> France. <wasn't. laughs> well, call me when they find the world's missing socks. <laughs> That's a discovery. <laughs> but folks, we've discovered something amazing. It's called email. You can activate it by typing the words dinner party at AmericanPublicMedia.org into your computer box. 
Our guest of honor this week is Lara Veers. She's an indie pop musician who is known for her songs filled with natural imagery, and she has a new album out called, intriguingly, July Flame. And Lara is wondering where the name for the album came from. I saw the name of a variety of a peach called July Flame, and I was like, I, just something about that title struck me. And then I kept writing a bunch more songs, and as I reflected on the themes that were emerging, I saw a lot of summer and fire and flame stuff happening. I was like, oh, that, maybe that would be a good album title as well. It sounds like a, like a noir character, July Flame, as a, a femme fatale. I like that idea. You might Wait. see it popping up somewhere. July Flame Fiery Why do artists and musicians rely on nature so heavily? I mean, I'm glad you asked it that way, because mostly people ask me, why do you write about nature? But my response is, everyone does. Look at the great poets and look at the great songwriters or anybody. Like, we're talking about it all the time, and it's often a cliche, you know, the the ways that we talk about nature. But it's somehow, it's a way of, of describing emotion that's not necessarily obvious. You work and live closely with your producer, right? Tucker Martin. Tucker is my man and my producer and my drummer. Oh. And we have made seven records together. Two records as lovers. Oh. All the others were as professional. Strictly professional. Yeah. I think that served us well because when we transitioned into being partners, like romance people who live together. Romance people. I like that (laughs) phrase. It's so romantic. (laughs) It truly does sound romantic, doesn't it? It's going to be in the census. Okay, good. Check. Um, I was a little worried that maybe we would be jerks to each other a little bit here and there because lovers can be jerks. So we made a pact ahead of time to be nice and professional. Yeah. And then if someone started to be a jerk, the other one would say pact. So now on to our two standard questions we ask of everyone. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked at dinner parties? What kind of music do you play? You probably get that a lot. But, but go ahead, but tell me about that's that. That's the truth, though. I would suggest people ask, what's your instrumentation? Because I think that tells you so much more. Like when they ask me what kind of music, it's folk and rock. Mm-hmm. What instrumentation? Oh, we have a balalaika, we have five people singing, we have a drum beat and a pedal, mm-hmm. we have a banjo and a bass keyboard. And, you know, like, it's kind of weird. It's not yeah. folk and rock. That doesn't yeah. tell you anything. So our second question is, tell us something we don't know, something you've never talked about in interviews before. I would say the question that I haven't gotten is what are your greatest strengths and weaknesses as an artist? So, tell us. So, strengths-wise, that's a hard word. Strengths. Yeah. <laughs> I would say finishing things. Like I teach songwriting and banjo and guitar and singing and stuff, and so many of the songwriters, they just can't finish their song. And it's like a very consistent problem that people come up against. Weakness. Weakness would be, I think... Um, there just aren't any. <laughs> no. So arrogance. Yeah. No. The weaknesses I have, I was not a good performer for many years. I would actually play shows and start early before anyone was there so that no one would see me. I can see that being an obstacle to succeeding as a singer-songwriter, not being able to perform. I've managed to come up with tools to deal with it and like just take a deep breath in the middle of a song helps. Like I read once, you can't have a panic attack and be breathing deeply at the same time. It's physiologically impossible. And that was such a relief to me. To oh, I, I, li- I live that way, though. I think that's wrong. <laughs> My whole life's an eternal panic attack, and I succeed in breathing. So. But you're not maybe breathing deeply. Well, I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> I'm 10,000. 
So breathing's her thing. Simple as that. Most rockers to calm down backstage, <laughs> they want whiskey and pills. Her backstage demand list consists of uh, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and a little bit of argon. <laughs> but mostly nitrogen. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can get addicted to us on Twitter. Follow us at Dinner Party DNLD. So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. That is right. And Brendan, this week I spoke to Jonathan Safran Four. Most people know him as a novelist of books like Everything is Illuminated. But the new book is nonfiction. It's called Eating Animals, and it is his argument for vegetarianism. I thought you said it was nonfiction. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure it has footnotes in it. <laughs> Uh, no, Always a sure sign. But seriously, we're joking. But vegetarianism really does get some meat eaters worked up. No, like, it's true. When I mentioned this book to a friend, he told me that he won't even invite vegetarians to dinner. So I asked Jonathan, why did my friend get so aggro? Because uh, your, friend, your friend's a pig, basically. <laughs> um, I think what your friend is probably expressing is like an appreciation of the stakes. No uh, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> That the way that we answer these questions says something about us. What do you think it says? You know, or what what do people think it says? Basically, people ask me the question, why am I vegetarian? However I answer it, the answer that they hear is because I think it's wrong to, like, ruthlessly torture animals. I think it's wrong to trample the environment, right. mow Brazil, and make antibiotics worthless. In fact, that kind of is my explanation. But <laughs> I was going to say, that's in your book, I'm afraid. Yeah, but um, I mean, I don't think of it in an absolutist way. I hope the book makes that clear. Um, it's not even meat, per se, that I am opposed to. It's factory farming, which, you know, now in America produces more than 99% of the meat in the country. And so when we talk about meat, we really are talking about factory farming, mm -hmm. but there's an important distinction. And But in a way, aren't you still being absolutist? Because if 99% of the meat in the country is made in factories, it's next to impossible to eat only the family farm meat that I think you would approve of. Um, well, I mean, look, if somebody said to me, Thanksgiving's really important to me, and part of what's important to me is the turkey. Like, it's just inextricably linked to the holiday. Right. So I'm going to buy it from Good Shepherd Farm, that's a farm I feature in the book. This guy, Frank Reese, runs it. Mm. I wouldn't have a real argument against that. I mean, it's not what I would do, but I've been to that guy's farm. He treats his turkeys better than I treat my dog, <laughs> you know? And there's no environmental argument against what he's doing. If all farms were like his farm, I wouldn't have written my book. In the anecdote you just gave, somebody says, it's important to me to have the turkey. This is something that you talk about, I think, very beautifully in the book, is the cultural attachments that we have to our food. I have tried to be a vegetarian in the past, and I find those cultural things really hard to overcome. How do you do it? I think they're really, really hard to overcome. So with you, what are these cultural instances that are so important? Well, I remember going through Germany once, and I was trying to be a vegetarian, but everywhere you go, you're being offered schnitzel. And after a while, it seemed really sort of impolite of me to be refusing it all the time. How much time did you spend in Germany? Not very much time. I, I'm not putting you on the spot, but my, my, my point is there aren't other ethical realms where we let the exceptions guide our daily choices, you know, like honesty, for example. Do you have to tell little white lies every now and then? Of, of course. But you don't throw up your hands in the air every time you tell a white lie and say, you know, screw it. Every time I'm presented <laughs> with a choice, I'm going to tell a lie now. 
So I think the problems with the conversation about vegetarianism, and this is what your meathead pig friend, um, I think, was responding to, is that it's often presented as a dichotomy or an absolute. And it's just not. So to set the record straight, I am not the friend who doesn't invite vegetarians to dinner. No, of course. Brendan is very ecumenical. It's true. But I do have a policy against boring moron faces. <laughs> it's a little thing. Maybe it's a family bias. You racist. <laughs> Maybe I, hope, a... I hope you're not absolutist about it. No, I do make an exception for attractive boring moron faces. <laughs> That's the dinner party download for this week. Angelinos, Jonathan Safran Four will be appearing at the Skirball Center and at bookstores all over Los Angeles this weekend. Look for him. And so will his stunt double, Jonathan Safran Five. And if you want to look for us, we're on Facebook. Search for Dinner Party Download. You can also catch us on the Arts and Culture Show Off Ramp, hosted by John Raby and Queena Kim. You'll find that at kpcc.org. Thanks this week to Becca Claren and Nancy Fargali. And we leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. And this is, because we feel like it, Deep Purple, covering the song Hush. It is off their debut album, Shades of Deep Purple, Dig the Bass. Deep Purp, bon appetit. Um, Rico Galliano. How come you always get to say your name first? It's alphabetical. Galliano starts with G. But Brendan comes before Rico. But you get three names. You have Rico, the super radio name. Packed.